Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions and dramatizations of the murder, torture, sexual assault, and abuse of minors. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the early 1970s, police in Houston, Texas, were ignoring a crisis right under their noses. Dozens of young boys were going missing in a neighborhood known as the Heights. Police assumed many of those boys were runaways, but little did they know a dangerous predator lurked in their very midst. Dean Coral was a tall, broad-shouldered man with wavy black hair in his early 30s. He had lived in the Heights neighborhood for a decade, and he was trusted in the community. But three years after the disappearances began, 17-year-old Wayne Henley shot and killed Dean, and the horrific truth about Dean finally surfaced. The missing boys had all met their demise by Dean's hand. Dean cruised the Heights in his Plymouth GTX, and he lured the boys back to his home where he tortured, assaulted, and killed them. Then he buried them in mass graves, evading detection the entire time. Once his dark secret was revealed and the bodies had been uncovered, Dean was believed to have killed at least 27 victims. Wayne Henley had sinister secrets of his own. Originally thought to be a hero, he confessed to being Dean's accomplice alongside 18-year-old David Brooks. Not to mention, when Wayne and David divulged that there were three mass burial sites scattered around the Houston area, the revelation shed light on how many cases of missing young boys the police had ignored, and for how long. Amid community grief and outrage, David and Wayne's trials were soon thrust into the national spotlight. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solve Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our final episode on Dean Coral and the Houston Mass Murders. Last week, we covered how Dean Coral groomed Wayne Henley and David Brooks to become accomplices in his heinous crimes. This week, we'll see the aftermath of Wayne and David's confessions, their sensational trials, and what really happened the night Dean was murdered. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. 
this thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On August 8, 1973, Wayne Henley summoned police to Dean Corll's home just outside Houston. When officers arrived, they were met by Wayne and his two friends, Tim Curley and Rhonda Williams. A twenty-two caliber handgun lay cold on the ground. Inside the house, Dean's lifeless body lay in a pool of blood. Investigators soon learned that Dean had perpetuated a three-year murder spree. Parents in the Heights had waited for answers about their missing children for that entire time, but faced disappointment and frustration when police turned up nothing. Law enforcement told many parents that their sons likely ran away, but the parents refused to accept that. Some took matters into their own hands. One victim's mother had even tipped police about a suspicious man cruising around the neighborhood in a GTX and provided the license plate number. The cops ignored this vital clue that would have led them right to Dean. After Dean died, David and Wayne led police to the burial sites. Many bodies were found and identified, but the search for victims' remains was suddenly and mysteriously called off. As investigators exhumed more and more bodies, law enforcement realized that one of the most prolific killers in American history operated right under their noses. To add to the disarray, criminal profiling was a relatively new field at the time. The concept of a serial killer would not emerge until one year later. Authorities lacked the resources and knowledge that we have today, but they aimed to provide answers nonetheless. Houston-area investigators offered personal theories into Dean's inner workings. One such theory involved Dean's earliest relationship with his mother— Dean lived with his mother until his early 30s. They operated their family's candy factory in the Heights until she closed it and moved to Colorado. Dean stayed in Texas, and investigators believe that's when the candy man launched into his life of terror. One homicide detective on the case later told the press that he believed Dean suppressed his demons while his mother was around, but once she was out of the picture, some kind of madness or evil was unleashed within him. While law enforcement speculated about the psychology of the killer, the parents of the missing boys demanded answers. But the police continued to deflect responsibility. Houston Police Chief Herman Short held a press conference that sparked outrage. Chief Short! Chief Short! Yes, you. You still haven't given the Houston community straight answers. Of the 27 known victims, 11 attended the same junior high. How come nobody pieced this together? How come nobody did their job? 
Look, do I tell you how to do your job? No, so don't pretend you can do mine. Police deal with runaway juveniles and missing persons as a public service. Running away isn't actually against the law. We can't go breaking into places without warrants. And we can only report to a family if a missing person has been found. Is that what you told parents who came to you in desperation? What about those who gave you tips? They gave you the man's car for crying out loud. If the parents can't provide any verifiable information, the child's report remains with the missing juvenile desk for 30 days. After that time, the report is consulted only if new information is received. So if you can't find the kid in a month, you throw the case into a filing cabinet somewhere? You know, the best advice we can offer is that parents should simply watch out for their kids in the first place. Things like this don't happen to good families. The lack of sympathy and support for parents in the Heights didn't stop at the police bureau. Houston Mayor Louis Welch echoed Chief Short's statements in an interview with the press. Many community members believe that if the boys had gone missing from one of the more affluent suburbs, the cases would have been investigated with more rigor. Working-class families simply didn't command the same attention. Chief Short made matters worse when he ordered his force to raid Houston's gay bars in an effort to prevent more crimes like Dean's. While this act would now be considered discriminatory, the conflation of gay men with pedophilia was unfortunately taken seriously by law enforcement at the time. In another useless measure, a neighborhood petition also recommended nightly curfews for children despite the fact that Dean had mostly abducted children and teens by day when they were less likely to be on their guard. Journalist Skip Hollinsworth revisited the case in a 2011 article for Texas Monthly, and he wondered if police were too quick to assume that the death toll stopped at 27. Hollinsworth points to the fact that Coral captured two teenagers, Jimmy Glass and Danny Yates, before he brought on David Brooks as an accomplice. Furthermore, one of the victims, Jeffrey Conan, had gone missing in September of 1970, a full three months before Brooks joined in. This shows that Coral was perfectly capable of being a predator all on his own. How many victims had he claimed by himself? But the police didn't probe that question too deeply. They stopped the search for bodies buried around Coral's house and candy factory after only a week. Perhaps they really didn't think there were more to discover. Or perhaps they were too scared to find out. They already had one of the most prolific killers in history on their hands. But homicide detective Larry Earls told Hollinsworth, It always bothered me. Henley and Brooks told us that they thought there were more bodies, and there were other places where we wanted to dig but we were told no. And the police response did little to console the parents whose sons were gone forever. Some turned to substance abuse to deal with their pain. Others were plagued by nightmares and psychological distress. Some continued searching, thinking they saw their sons' faces everywhere, even though they knew their children would never return. One family member told a journalist, quote, Dean Coral didn't just kill 27 boys, he killed 27 families. But lashing out at law enforcement for their failures wouldn't bring the victims' families any closure, and Dean Coral was dead. He could no longer answer for his crimes. 
So all eyes turn to the upcoming murder trials of Dean's accomplices, Wayne Henley and David Brooks. Up next, Wayne's sensational trial piques the interest of a best-selling author. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices. Others warn of impending doom. And then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in plain sight. All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Now back to the story. In August 1973, Wayne Henley shot Dean Coral and exposed one of the most gruesome mass murderers in American history. Wayne and his friend David Brooks quickly confessed that they were accomplices to Dean's three-year murder spree. They helped Dean lure, torture, kill, and bury many of his victims. David was 18 years old when he provided investigators with detailed written confessions that placed him at the scene of several of the murders. Part of his confession included an in-depth description of his involvement in the killing of 15-year-old Billy Lawrence. Billy's murder had been particularly heinous in that he had been kept alive for three days of torture and was forced to write a letter to his father saying he'd left town but would return soon. In his confession, David admitted that when he went over to Dean's house, Billy was tied to the bed. Now 20 years old, David sat in the courtroom as the prosecution characterized him as a lure and a murderer, and detailed his role in Billy's demise. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'd like to remind you of David's own confession in which he states, and I quote, We left at about 6 p.m. to go to the lake, and Billy was dead and in a box. Unquote. David, Wayne, and Dean took the body to the lake, but first, they went fishing. They couldn't be bothered to put him in the ground beforehand. 
David's defense argued that the prosecution did not prove a motive and provided only circumstantial evidence. But the prosecution countered that David's long-standing relationship with Dean and Wayne served as admissible evidence that Billy's death was the continuation of a plan by the three. David's defense team rested without calling any witnesses. The next day, the jury announced a guilty verdict for the murder of Billy Lawrence. David was given a life sentence at the Ramsey Unit, south of Houston. In January of 1974, Wayne took the stand in a pre-trial hearing. He aimed to prevent his voluntary confessions from months prior from being used in court. He claimed that on the morning that he allegedly shot Dean, he was hungover, half-drunk, and stoned. Furthermore, he said that he did not recall confessing, nor escorting police to the mass grave sites. The judge in the pretrial hearing decided Wayne's original confession was admissible. The official trial began on July 1, 1974, at Bear County Courthouse in San Antonio, almost 200 miles from Houston due to the high-profile news coverage of the case. The Houston mass murders, as they were now known, had attracted international attention and grabbed headlines across the globe. Wayne wasn't the only recognizable face in the courtroom. Author Truman Capote, who just eight years earlier published one of the most famous true crime novels of the century, In Cold Blood, was in attendance. His book about the murder of a Kansas family had been a sensation, and the story of Dean Corll and his teen accomplices may have held the promise of another bestseller. Capote was planning to write a series of articles on the trial for the Washington Post. He arrived on the scene with an entourage. At this point in his career, Capote was more of a personality than an author. He hadn't published a novel in almost a decade. What he hoped to find at Wayne Henley's trial remains a mystery. He'd once said that writing In Cold Blood haunted him, and the case in Houston looked like it could hold a similar experience. Perhaps this is why when Capote saw Henley enter the courtroom, the author was heard muttering, I've seen this before. He got up, left, and never published anything about the Houston mass murders. The frenzy carried on, even without a famous author in the audience. Wayne was charged with six counts of murder based on a written statement he allegedly made the day after his arrest. The defense sought an insanity plea. The Harris County District Attorney handled the prosecution. The prosecution did not seek the death penalty for Wayne. Even though he had participated in many horrific killings and directly murdered Dean, they only sought to put him away for life in prison. The prosecution called around 25 witnesses to the stand and reminded the jurors how the victims had been tied up, raped, and tortured prior to their deaths. Assistant DA Don L. Lambright felt that Wayne's statement to police on August 9th was clear evidence of his involvement in the killings. He knew the victims' names and accurately described the circumstances of their deaths before any of the bodies had been exhumed or identified. This seemed like proof positive that Wayne was guilty. Lambright then asked the jury to think about the people in this case. Every victim was someone's child. He reminded them how one of the victim's mothers had to be escorted from the witness stand earlier in the trial. 
She was too emotional to continue. More than anything, the case was about justice. And that's exactly what Lambright appealed to. With so much evidence against their client, the defense could do little except try to undermine the prosecution's emotional appeals. They didn't call Wayne to the stand, but they did file 303 objections during the trial, which the judge overruled. The defense asked the jury to cast a critical eye on the evidence, pointing out that a box allegedly used to carry victims to the burial sites was too small. They also noted that the alleged torture board showed no traces of blood. They criticized the prosecution's reliance on Wayne's oral statements, which were self-incriminating, and contended that police officers were recalling Wayne's words almost seven months after the fact. But Wayne also had made a written confession. And the words themselves, along with the prosecution's reasoning, seemed to make the most impact. After a week of testimonies, It took less than 90 minutes for a jury of six men and six women to find Wayne Henley guilty on all counts. Onlookers noticed that Wayne showed no emotion when he heard the verdict and was later seen smiling and joking with his attorneys. But Wayne's mother, grandmother, and three younger brothers cried. Elsewhere in the courtroom, family members of the victims felt some sense of closure. The next day after Wayne's sentencing, his mother told reporters, I believed he was innocent from the beginning, and I'll always believe it. I'm standing right outside the courthouse where Wayne Henley has just been found guilty of six counts of murder. Henley, as you'll recall, was the accomplice of notorious mass murderer Dean Coral. The assistant DA is making his way out of the building now and is being swarmed by members of the press. Sir, sir, is there anything you'd like to say? Today, justice was served by a Texas jury. Wayne Henley will spend the rest of his life behind bars. No further questions, please. Ma'am, ma'am, as the mother of a victim of the Houston mass murders, how are you feeling right now? I feel like a giant weight has been taken off my shoulders, off the whole city's shoulders. Justice has finally been served. David Brooks remained quiet during his years in prison. He offered no public interviews. His daughter visited him often before she tragically died in a car crash as a teenager. Since many bodies remained unidentified at the time of the initial digs, David was also instrumental in identifying yet another victim as recently as 2006. A researcher dug into old records and DNA from the Houston mass murder case and using the skull from an unidentified victim was able to create a computerized photo of what that person might have looked like. David helped ID the victim, though by this time, the boy's mother had already passed away. He expressed his regrets to the researcher and told her, quote, I wish I had told my mother what he was doing to me. If I had told her... I wouldn't be here now. David died in prison of COVID-19 in 2020. Wayne Henley continues to serve his prison sentence in Carnes County, Texas. He was sentenced to 99 years for each killing, a total of 594 years to be served consecutively. He was granted a second trial in 1979 on grounds of an improper denial of a change of venue request. 
All of the details of Wayne's involvement in the murders were rehashed, this time before a jury in Corpus Christi. But the second trial didn't change anything for Wayne. He remained behind bars. Unlike David, Wayne granted several interviews to news outlets and in 1991 even made an appeal for redemption on the news magazine show 48 Hours. With some newfound perspective on his crimes, 35-year-old Wayne described his relationship with Dean as living in a madman's world. Wayne first came up for parole in 1983 and has been eligible several times during the last few decades. And each time, parents of the victims must revisit the trauma of the Houston mass murders. They write letters urging the board to deny the request. So far, Wayne's attempts have remained unsuccessful. But that hasn't kept Wayne from seeking the spotlight in other ways. In 1997, a Houston-area art gallery displayed a collection of works that Wayne created from prison. The pieces included landscape paintings and a pencil sketch of model Kate Moss. The exhibit was met with protests from victims' family members who felt that Wayne should not be celebrated in any way. Despite the outrage, or perhaps because of it, almost all Wayne's art sold. Perhaps Wayne's pressing need to reframe his life had something to do with how he saw the events the night Dean Coral died. Some thought Wayne was a hero. Others thought he killed Dean out of fear. Ultimately, Wayne was not charged with the murder of Dean Coral. It was ruled self-defense. But he would always remember that day, and the story has haunted him throughout his life. Coming up, Wayne's state of mind when he pulled the trigger and killed Dean Coral. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. At Sephora, we know how you love to use makeup, skincare, hair care, and fragrances that work for you, but also how important it is to be in the know about the ingredients that are in them, which is why we created Clean at Sephora, curated products from brands like Merit, Amica, Summer Fridays, and Fleur that have everything you want, minus certain ingredients you might not. Clean at Sephora is only at Sephora. Shop now at Sephora.com. And now, back to our story. In the summer of 1973, Dean Coral's desire for murder accelerated. He and his teen accomplices had killed eight boys in just a matter of weeks. Wayne, who was 17 at the time, was looking for a way out of the heights and a life away from Dean. Dean's demands were becoming untenable, and Wayne had grown concerned that Dean might pursue Wayne's younger brothers if he left the area. He tried to join the Navy, but the armed forces rejected his application due to his limited education. Wayne felt trapped. He had been an accomplice of Dean's for more than two years, and a rendezvous at Dean's place could quickly turn deadly. Despite this, 
He invited his friends Tim and Rhonda over to Dean's house that fateful August night for a bit of partying and fun. It's possible Wayne brought Tim to Dean as a new victim and Rhonda just happened to tag along. In any case, it was unusual for a girl to be at Dean's. Wayne must have known it would infuriate the 33-year-old killer to have Rhonda there. Wayne and Rhonda had known each other for some time. She later claimed that he was like a big brother to her. Wayne had been there for Rhonda during troubled times with her family. She had also turned to him when her previous boyfriend, Frank Aguirre, disappeared in 1972, although she later learned that Wayne had lured Frank into Dean's trap. Rhonda had even met Dean once before. One time when she and Wayne were riding their bikes, she got a flat tire. They walked their bikes along the road and Dean pulled up in a white van. Dean seemed upset that he found Wayne with her, but he quietly loaded the bikes in the van and gave her a ride home. Since Rhonda's presence had upset Dean before, Wayne likely knew that Tim bringing her along would upset Dean again. And that's exactly what happened on that hot August night. (laughs) While the three teens went about their business of drinking moonshine and huffing paint fumes, Dean quietly stewed in the shadows. It was clear to Wayne that Dean was disturbed that a girl had encroached upon his sacred space. After the teens partied for some time, they passed out. Dean took full advantage. He hogtied all three of them and gagged Tim and Rhonda. He dragged Wayne into the kitchen. How dare you! A girl! A girl! Why would you ever bring a girl into my home? Wayne was only able to calm Dean down when he promised to murder Rhonda himself. Dean's fury was still evident on his face, but he stopped threatening Wayne. Wayne's heart likely skipped a beat. For the first time in their relationship, he may have been afraid that Dean would turn on him. Luckily for Wayne, Dean untied him instead. For Dean, this was a grave mistake. He had no idea that Wayne's allegiances had finally shifted against him. Without suspecting a thing, Dean turned his attention back to Tim and Rhonda. Years later, Rhonda recalled the horror of that moment as she spoke with a reporter. Testing, one, two. Okay, Rhonda, we're up to speed. Let's start from where you woke up and found out that you'd been tied up. Right. I saw that Dean was holding a 22 caliber gun. Wayne had a knife. Dean told Wayne to take care of me. Dean left, and Wayne came over and took off our gags and whispered to me, Everything's going to be all right. I'm going to get you out of here. Then he left. What happened next? I told Tim we were going to get out of there, and he said I was crazy. It was about that time that Dean came in and dragged Tim to the back room. I can still hear him screaming. I'm sorry. Then Dean came for me. He tied me up next to Tim and told Wayne to take off my clothes. Wayne cut through my jeans and panties with a knife. I couldn't believe it. One minute Wayne tells me he's getting us out of there, and the next he's stripping me naked. Then Dean walked out of the room and I asked Wayne if it was all for real. He said yes. So I asked him point blank, well, are you going to do anything about it? 
Rhonda's question seemed to wake Wayne from a spell. While Dean prepared to rape Tim, Wayne got a hold of Dean's handgun. Then he told Dean that he'd had enough. Tim later told television interviewers that he saw Wayne change into a different person. He said he saw a spirit from hell inside Wayne. Wayne shot Dean once in the forehead and twice in the shoulder. Then Dean tried to run, so he shot him again once in the back of the shoulder and twice in the small of the back. Dean, the Candyman Coral's reign of terror, was finally over. Initially, everyone saw Wayne as a hero. But as the news of Wayne's real crime surfaced, his final actions left his friends emotionally torn. Tim and Rhonda were the only two victims to survive Dean Coral's torture board, and for that they were grateful. But they couldn't understand why Wayne brought them there in the first place. Tim later said he wasn't sure if he wanted to shake Wayne's hand or beat him up. Rhonda's feelings were also complicated. She said Wayne eventually told her he'd considered shooting her in the back of the head that night. Yet she also acknowledged that, quote, whatever evil was in Wayne, there was still some good in him. And finally, the good won. Wayne later told reporters that Rhonda's trust gave him the gumption to do something about Dean. In interviews, it seems that Wayne felt some guilt for involving Rhonda in the whole sordid affair. He expressed remorse that, as her friend, he victimized her. But as for his other victims, Wayne was hard-pressed to show any real sorrow. In 1976, he told a reporter, quote, I feel remorse because I'm supposed to. That's something I've tried to build in me. I don't really feel about it, you know? I wished I hadn't done it. I'm glad I got it over with telling. I'm glad now I'm not hiding it, waiting, and Dean ain't out there killing little kids. But as far as any emotion to it, there's no heartfelt emotion. Now, five decades removed from the killing spree, Wayne claims he feels like a different person. He acknowledges that people will continue to believe he is evil. But as he pointed out in an earlier interview, at the time of the killings, he hadn't even gotten his driver's license yet. He was following Dean's lead. Like David once did, Wayne thinks of his mother and says, quote, I know I'm not useless. I know I've become someone my mom would be proud of. Yet the horror wrought by Dean Coral, Wayne Henley, and David Brooks still lingers on for the families of the victims. Some may have found some closure in August of 1973 when their boys were unearthed in one of the mass graves. But there are still aging parents out there who continue to write letters to the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences, hoping to find answers about their missing sons among the unidentified remains. Sadly, they may never get the answers that they long for. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. 
For more information on Dean Coral, Wayne Henley, and David Brooks, among the many sources we used, we found Texas Monthly articles The Lost Boys by Skip Hollinsworth and The Last Kid on the Block by James Conaway extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Gina Hall, with writing assistance by Sarah Batchelor and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Cameron Nicod, and Kimlin Tran. Solve Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.